friends, and welcome to Pod Return to the Waking Sands. We are a Final Fantasy XIV companion podcast where we explore the lore and story of Heidelin and beyond. My name is Jen, and I'm joined by my co-host and researcher. I'm Levi. Hello, Levi. Welcome to the start of our White Magic series which is a three-episode series where we'll be delving into the history and practice of white magic in Eorzea. Today, we start off by talking about the history of white magic, and we will explore the lost city of Amdapur. So, white magic as we know it was discovered during the Fifth Astral Era, known as the Age of Enlightenment. This is the same era where the black magics of Vok and the scholarly magics of Nim were in vogue. The era, of course, began at the end of the Fifth Umbral Era, which had suffered from the Calamity of Ice. During the Umbral Era, the peoples of the world hunkered down and waited out the cold. But, as the frosts began to recede, a land rush of sorts began. People emerged from their shelters and began to lay claim to this newly available, newly settleable land. Which brings us to the founding of Amdapur. This is in what is now known as South Shroud, as in Southern Black Shroud, but this was once a rocky plain. It was before the forest had expanded that far south. The Shroud still existed, and the Elemental still existed at this time, but they were just further to the north. That was where the confines of the Shroud were. And a group of here traveled here and began to use the wealth of stone in the plain and the nearby mountains to construct a city, Amdapur. These here attempted to make contact with their neighbors, the elementals, but they were pretty much given the finger, so they resolved to live and let live. And they stayed, for the most part, out of the shroud. A wise decision. Yes. So the city of Amdapur continued to grow. And they worshipped Nofika, goddess of soil, harvests, and abundance. They practiced a peaceful and benevolent philosophy, maintaining peace with their neighbors, both elemental and mortal. And Amdapur would grow to become a bastion of arts and culture. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the founding. Now on to the meat of it, white magic. An editorial note before we get going. White magic isn't inherently good or bad. We typically think of it as being good because a large part of its functionality as we see it in the game and also theming and fantasy stuff in general is that healing and protection and so on are, quote, good things, even though it's more a matter of the morality of the wielder versus the act itself that is good. And beyond just the, you know, you have to use your powers for good, blah, blah, blah. Also, the Aether has to come from somewhere. White magic doesn't just appear from nowhere. It's not a um, divine benevolence. This still taps the Aether of the land and uses it to an end. And it can tap out the land's Aether just as easily as can black magic. It's just a tool that can be used and can be misused. This is important because of the way that it's going to be framed by the current white mages in the next episode. They give us a different story, but I want to highlight here that in its actual history, it is both a good and bad thing. Yeah, so don't let some smug white mage come up on you in your black mage awesomeness and be like, you're the devil. I use my powers for good. Like, you can just, you can stone motherfuckers just as easily as I can fire motherfuckers. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So moving on then, Amdapur's founders had brought with them some magical arts. They were evidently skilled, especially in animating golems, stone statues. And it's a good thing too, because of the city's abundance of stone. They went on to practice their minor magics. I'm assuming that they used these golems in the construction and protection of their city, whatever. That's all well and good. However, another city-state called Vok had developed something, a little something we call black magic. <clears throat> and they were not using it judiciously. Vok had taken full advantage of black magic's destructive potential and their void-scent binding skills to aggressively expand their claims. 
Seeing this on the horizon, Amdapur does the math and realizes that Vok is going to make a claim on Amdapur's lands sooner or later, probably sooner. So this galvanizes the kind of minor magic, minor wizardry of Vok, and they start to develop a countermeasure, a counter magic, which is white magic. This is something that they can take and they can use as essentially a denial. This is like magical nuclear escalation in a way. <laughs> that is astute. Thank you. This is touted as an art that can protect, purify, and heal. And this is so powerful a magic that it gives the Vaki pause. So they say, well, now these guys got something of their own. Maybe we got to sit back and think for a minute. And they do, but it's not let's leave them alone. It's let's get more powerful so we can come back later on and then stop them. Cool. So this is kind of like a cold war, I imagine, between Vok and Amdapur as they both kind of build up their magics. The way it's presented is that Amdapur does it for defense and Vok for offense. Either way, though, they are building their own arsenal of magics here for martial purposes. And also during this time, there's not just these two powers, also the other 10 city-states of the age, including Nim, and they're doing their own BS as well with their own uh, kind of expansionism and fights against Fock and so on. So this collective period is what's called the War of the Magi. Hmm. The combined conflicts from start to finish of all these city-states and their magics going to war lasted around three centuries. <laughs> Get a hobby. <laughs> I think this was their hobby. It's a bad hobby. The peoples of this age keep on developing their magics, and they eye their neighbors with fear and or ambition. As part of their arms race, Amdapur starts to imbue their stone golems with white magic and ramp up production. So they, they forge what is called Soulkin here, which kind of even gives these golems a form of limited sentience as they are powered up with this white magic. And the city becomes dominated by statuary that is ready to spring to life against any threat. As we'll see, um, sadly, this isn't until much later on, but there is a lot of kind of weaponized art in the city. So it kind of abuses its cultural icon in a way by both expanding its aesthetics at the same time span expanding its military prowess, which is kind of like a sculpting an army. Yeah, exactly. And unfortunately, details are scarce, but there is a reference in the encyclopedia to the creation of demon walls. This is actually not a demon. This is a Amdapuri golem that's built into a wall and just given like a spooky sculpture, spooky sculpting. Hmm. And these are evidently animated with blood magic. So they inscribe runes of blood on these walls to bring them to life. And I wished there was more detail because it's interesting, but I wonder if the other golems use a similar art. That's funny because there, there are actual bosses in the game that are demon walls. Yes. I mean, the demon wall has been a long-term Final Fantasy boss. So, of course, they'll find a way to repurpose it into this game's lore. But um, I'm just, I'm more curious though, just in terms of like, are, are all of the statues that we will see from Amdapur, are they all blood magic? Because even though we think of blood magic as being evil in terms of our kind of inherent biases, blood is also life too. This does have like a thematic alignment with white magic in a way. Yeah, also because our uniforms are white and red. So there you go. Nice. It is the goodness and it's the blood magic. <laughs> Beyond blood magic statues, many of the offensive spells in the white mage arsenal were developed around here too. Holy, despite the benign-sounding name, was created as an anti-void scent weapon, though it works just as effectively against other creatures. It does. Meanwhile, during all this weaponization of white magic to combat Vok, the Vaki were doing their own arms escalation. They now think it's time to strike. They have their black mages all together, and their void mages, and their summoned void scent, and they advance towards Amdapur. As they're ace in the hole, their their big weapon, whatever, the Vaki summon a powerful void scent, Diabolos. However, the Amdapuri fight back desperately, 
And between the white mages and their white magic imbued constructs, Vok is repelled and Diabolos is trapped beneath the city. This victory, though, is bittersweet since irreversible damage was done both to the aether of the city and also of the world itself due to this conflict plus the overall war of the magi in general. This was, in a way, the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. So the culmination of this 300 plus years of magi wielding magics with abandon has tipped the world's ethereal balance irreversibly towards water. And so comes the calamity of water, putting an end to the fifth astral era. And we talked about this more and the lead up to that calamity in the Grand Company episode. So no need to go back into that here. Ultimately, though, the Amdapori would end up fleeing to the highlands of Gear Urbania to escape the floods. This is the region where we find Alamigo today, and we'll pick up the trail of the Amdapori in a much later episode. In the wake of the War of the Magi and the ensuing calamity, there was an extreme backlash to magic use in general. White and black magic especially were banned given their involvement in the tipping point of the calamity. Black mages ultimately went underground, subsuming their practices into religion as we discussed in the Thaumaturge episode. (laughs) White magic was largely abandoned after the calamity, its practice forbidden. So Jin, did Amdapur do nothing wrong? They are cast as the defender in the War of the Magi, but they also abused magic as heavily as Vok in their own way. I feel like we have a hell no reaction to Void Scent because it's kind of like demon summoning adjacent and kind of cast in our normal moralities being bad. So you're Amdapur and you see Vok doing their thing. And what what are you going to do? Just not do something? So... I don't know what it was that made them turn to white magic. Was it listed like, okay, so you're you're up against a uh, uh, an expansionist <laughs> piece of shit nation um, that's using black magic. Uh, use the opposite. It's going to be white magic. Well, if I were to guess about that, I would say they just named it because it was opposite black. Like there's nothing. Sure. Yeah. No, it's. Yeah. I guess also white magic has a lot of white in its visuals as well. So that might be <laughs> white too. But I, I think honestly. No, I, like, I think it's a philosophical choice. Yeah. So I, yeah, what they're not just going to sit and yes, their um, misuse of the magic uh, did destroy the world. I mean, is that is that something that they knew would happen? Was this like a Hail Mary? Like we got it. You know, if if we fuck up the world, the world's going to be fucked up anyway, so we got to do it regardless. Or, you know, like the, the scholars of Amdapur at the time, were they like our, our scientists now, you know, you know, sending the alarm on climate change? Were they sounding the alarm for, you know, all of this gobbling of ether that they're doing? Yeah. Frankly, I don't know if that was foreseen at all. If I were to guess, I'd say probably um, maybe towards the end, there may have been more alarm bells in a sense because going people off. people can observe this yes. and they definitely would have observed this so somebody was telling somebody and i'm sure it was probably hundreds of people telling somebody but i don't know and i wouldn't guess that they knew it would cause this problem when they were developing it as a countermeasure oh no this is something that we figured out you know a few years into it and then it was impossible to stop it because then it was, this was the only viable solution to a defense against Vok. You know, you can't be like, oh, you're just as culpable. Like, they, you know, it started out as literally just trying to defend themselves. They weren't using white magic to go and destroy their neighbor and start proselytizing and colonizing in the name of white magic all over the realm. They weren't doing that. Vok was doing that. Either you capitulate or you fuck everything up. Well, so we, it, can, it we can't agree that it was complicated. Yes. <laughs> Careful now, Jin. Don't be too controversial. <laughs> it, it, it does suck in general thinking about being in that position. You know, like, what are you going to do? I, I'm assuming that, you know, we don't have much to go on at this point about what Vok is like, but I'm assuming being conquered by them is not the best thing. Oh, I would say so, because, um, again, it seems like a very authoritarian regime. And they're utilizing Void Scent, who are fundamentally opposed to the things that we value here in, on Heidelin. And... 
it's yeah they're they're not they're not even like on the same moral plane as the vaki so all of that all of that is bad yes yeah. <laughs> yes it is bad i think the conclusion is that it sucks and i honestly you know with what we know i wouldn't i, I guess it's either do, do you fight back and perish or do you surrender and perish <laughs> the, that- and that's we just we just had a conversation similar to this when the leaders of Eorzea are trying to figure out what to do about the Black Wolf. Yeah. It's, you know, do we stand and fight knowing that we're probably all going to fucking die or do we surrender? But that's gross. And that's doing nobody any favors. So I don't I don't believe they really had any choice. They were put in a very impossible to you know, position. I mean, that is the answer is to have the warrior of light, the chosen of Hydaelyn there to do a, a surgical counter to your enemy versus have an all-out mutually destructive war. Right. Which is not something you can just choose to have available to you. Yeah, we weren't we weren't born yet. Nope. So sucks to be them. Sucks to suck. Listeners that have played through more of the game also know there's more implied subtext to the um the story, this lead up to the calamity that we can't t- talk about here sadly but it does add further context to this conversation and to the lead up to this calamity the um the calamity of water was that f- fifth umbral um, astral then that would be the sixth umbral calamity oh the one directly preceding the uh our calamity yes okay even though it, it's centuries and centuries yeah i'm like also the calamities are not a set amount of time or the no. the, er- the eras sorry nope, they are not it could be centuries it could be five years <laughs> yes they could be correct but yeah that is the most recent calamity before um the one that began a realm reborn <clears throat> so uh yes moving on in the wake of the sixth calamity the city of amdapur became lost to the ages not by chance but because the elementals who had observed the destructive consequences of white magic from afar, they sealed the city up with an impenetrable wall of forest growth, masking its existence and barring access. But the destruction wrought by the seventh calamity has destroyed this barrier, allowing us access to the lost city. And that's where we're going today. Yes. Well, the reason why we're going... So, yeah, okay, that brings us... To, to right now. So like, now what? God. <laughs> the lost city of Emdapur just keeps having problems. Uh, but but it does. Arun. So of the three seed seers, he is the one who can um, hear the elementals the clearest. And... These are the siblings. So right, the seed seers. Khan Isena is the elder seed seer. We know her very well from the main story. Yeah, pretty well. Um, we have not yet met, at least in our show playthrough... Her two siblings, Arun Sena and Rhea O Sena. Okay, so where do we fucking get it? Well, yeah, Isumiyan, we're at the Conjurer's Guild. You do you get this as a non-white mage? Yes. It there, just it just pops up after there's a bunch of shit that pops up after you do Ultima. Yes. Once you do Ultima, then you get the vomit of all the side content. Oh, that's that's I took a screenshot of the vomit that was in Mordona, that that one tavern. <laughs> Absolutely ridiculous. But there is custom dialogue in this quest. If you are a white mage. Uh, yes, and I was. Um, so it was like, uh, oh, thank God you're our best mage for this. I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, at uh, at the Conjurer's Guild, Isumiyan tells us that his, um, not his, they're not related. No. No. Um, they're all the brethren of the elementals. So the uh, this, one of the seeds here is Rhea O. She's, she hangs out in Camp Tranquil. And we're going to go out and talk to her about this something that's going on with the, the city of Amdapur. Arun shows up as well and gives us the, the goss. Rhea O. Senna is like the younger sister of Connie Senna. And Connie looks like a... Woman? Yeah, like a, I call her like a late teen probably like she has mature features even though the bajals have their aging halted prematurely mm-hmm. but both of her younger siblings have halted their growth at a younger age by appearance they're like about 12 yeah raya oh she looks like a, a tween ass girl yeah and she has she's kind of lanky auburn they, they both have auburn hair she has like a flower in her, in her hair she is the main white mage person when we get to that next time and then her brother a Runesena, this is the dork ass fucking kid. <laughs> His haircut is infuriating. 
he he's got like a, a bowl cut that goes below his it, it his hides eyes. his eyes you can't it's like cousin it you cannot see his eyeballs and then he's got like a, a whoop in back it's it's upsetting i'm pretty sure the elemental did not halt your fucking haircut in Ew. perpetuity yeah so he's just living his best bull cut life <laughs> yep <laughs> um but it really makes you feel a certain way towards him yes <laughs> and it's not very charitable <laughs> nope. um he does live up to that expectation um for quite some time but in this case he walks up you're like who the fuck is this kid um but he tells us that he has been hearing of a uh, disturbance near the lost city of Amdapur. one of the causes for the destruction of the city of Amdapur and the ensuing calamity was because of a quote-unquote unclean presence. Well, this is very interesting, and we'll talk more about this next time during the White Mage episode, because it feels like the Elementals are not telling the Pajals what happened to Amdapur. The Elementals were around during the fall of Amdapur. I don't think they are so blind as to not actually know what happened, but what we learn though from this pair is that no records survive of how the city met its end mm. which i'm pretty sure is just the elementals controlling information going yeah. to the pajals damn deep state exactly and then they say the city was undone by an unclean presence which i'm guessing is the ethereal corruption that sparked the calamity and so on right um so our job as the best person on the planet is to go investigate what is going on. If the seal has indeed broken and the um, the netherlings have become more powerful and have started taking over the place, we need to nip that shit in the bud right now. And I think that's exactly what Arun says. He says you need to go nip that in the bud. Yeah, he does. Gridania jokes. And <laughs> he tells us that the elementals told him there is a darkness growing behind the barrier. Something is awakening. Yeah. All the elementals will show him are nightmares. This um, is a, a real kind of like, we don't want to tell you about this shit. So we're just going to make it really scary and hope you go and solve the problem for us. Oh, it worked. It does work. Yeah. So, you know, and I, I think at this point, does anybody know about the thing that was trapped under the city? I think no. Not even the elementals, possibly, because... They, this is all inference, of course, but they were in the shroud during the shit. I, I guarantee they noted the black and white mages going at it. Sure. I, I would not be surprised if they had no details as to the um, unfolding of that conflict. So I would believe that they were in the dark about Diabolos itself being trapped within the city. But because the elementals are very in tune with the ethereal balance of the world, they might see this volatility growing they were seeing like a uh, like a power surge down yeah there. because what has happened is that with the seventh calamity the uh imbalances rot throughout the black shroud have weakened the barrier that the elementals put up to keep people away from amdapur and also we will learn this same thing is what has broken the seal that was containing diabolos within the city yes in present times the stone city of amdapur still stands um, in pretty good condition, actually, except that it looks very different from what it once was back in the day. Because due to a deficiency of earth aether, uh, this has spurred some heavy fungal growth in the city. Heavy fungal growth. Once we talk to Rhea O and Arun, we then head up to the gate that leads to the city itself. This is a big wooden metal reinforced gate in South Shroud where there is a single wood whaler standing guard named Alphine. Be careful, he says. Rot and wrong. That's what you'll see. Creatures run mad, tormented by hooked burrs that clutch and burrow. Dungeon unlocked. <laughs> Go have fun. Sounds great. So thank you to Nashu Jinjal on Paladin and Naughty Ivy on Dragoon that joined us for this dungeon. Yeah. I'm continuing to try to get good about healing on Scholar. And it seems really hard. It's it's hard. It's hard. You have to like you have to 
like think backwards that's something i cannot wrap my head around being like a shield healer i play as um whenever i heal on my main i play as sage which is also a barrier healer and it's uh so it's it's more not really thinking backwards yes if you know a fight you know what's coming hopefully and you can know when you need to use certain mitigation that is like the practice level if you were going in either blind or just not knowing it very well because they didn't run it very much you can still just prep barriers for future attacks you, you can say okay it's been a while since we had a raid wide maybe let's do a party wide shield or you can see a cast bar and sometimes you can tell like what it's going to be sure it's it's just like you, you look at the fight cues and you try to adapt and if you fuck up then deal with it pretty much <laughs> is the answer Fair. um that's my experience in general again i'm not an expert healer um i am trying to get better it's harder of course because when i i whip out scholar it's for these minimum eye level runs or our recent extreme not the easiest content to be good at healing no, and when this i fuck was, up this was hard when i fuck up it is more consequential than it would be for a normal synced dungeon Thank you, everyone, for being gracious as I do mess up sometimes with my um, my barriers and my heals. And I think the minimum eye level thing, it, it, it fucks with your head. It's good. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's like doing it for the first time. Yeah. Except in my case, my first time was as a level 80 blue mage. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, let me just run this unsync real quick. Oh, take some notes. And then I got the... Mapping the realm. This was Jen's first ever real run of the dungeon. Did it twice in a day. Yeah. Nice work, Jen. <laughs> also, apparently, Nashu is a super veteran and was full of good info on this place. How, like, uh, yes. I was very impressed. I like I, Of all the content in this game, how people can keep this shit straight in their heads, especially by his own admission, he was like, yeah, I've done this like a couple of times in roulettes or whatever. But then he remembers there were some batshit mechanics in this dungeon. Let's just yeah. get that out of the way. No pun intended. Oh, fuck. It should have been pun intended. Right? <laughs> wah, wah. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah. So The devil's in the details. <laughs> I, I think that, you know, if, if you run something enough times, it's going to stick in there. Especially if you do it at a certain age. Right. I'm not commenting on not Nashu's middle-aged. age. But, <laughs> you, know, you know, if, if you're going to run... <laughs> some dungeon or some raid 20 plus times something's going to lodge in your brain especially if you have some struggles tied to it and even if you come back later on it might not be perfect but you can still get refreshed on the fly definitely yeah um and because it was so batshit and distinct i think that would probably lodge in your head a little bit yep. more also nashu had not yet done a min eye level run of amdapur so got them there Aha! we did it a couple times so, we enter the dungeon. So, we've got... Um I mean, aesthetically, there's like two levels, but emotionally, it's more like three. This is very, it's very Gridanian in architectural style. It's very Art Nouveau. You think so? Yeah, I saw a lot of that. There's some like Gothic architecture in there as well. I, I got more of like a um, Mediterranean vibe from it, frankly. Mediterranean? Yeah, because it's got the crow-stepped gable roofs with those almost terracotta-like roof tiles. I think they're called... Um, interlocking roof tiles there everything's covered to shit with mold so it's got this patina of yellow and beige over it but you can see that they were very vivid at one point in time before they got weathered and overgrown well i'm, th- I'm thinking of like some of like the the, the decorative details on like uh, light fixtures and window openings and things like that um, taking those cues there. No, it's, it's totally possible they could be like a, like a you know, kind of a mix of them. I did not notice root trials at all, but that does, that reminds me of like the, uh, like the mission revival style that you see in Southern California a lot or like Santa Barbara, but they're like a, like a deep kind of like a rusty orange color, right? Yeah. And they're like wavy. Um, well, and this, they're, sti- they're typically on stuccoed houses. These tiles are not like the wavy terracotta. They're more, they're kind of like a leaf shape almost. Oh, like a shingle. But they are, I think, ceramic. Interesting. That, I mean, that does, but that, 
that kind of like scale yeah. pattern, that's definitely Gridanian. And I, like when, and I guess like these kind of large um, pointed arches, you know, like a Gothic arch yeah. that features very heavily. What um, struck me most as this being a different aesthetic was actually the crow stepped gables, which is, you know, like that kind of stair step. I can't picture it like a standard gable, but they're like stacked on top of one another as they follow the slope. Yes. Are they actual steps you walk on or is that just the shape? It's just the shape. <laughs> I'm just I'm just now hearing of this term and I didn't notice that detail. And so I'm trying to wrap it around. We have to title this episode the fucking crow step gable episode. Fine. Because we enter the dungeon, we end up in like a stone courtyard. You can't see more than like 50 feet in front of you because it's so spores. thick with spores. But then you step forward and you come to this descending switchback stairway. Yeah. And you can see before you, there's like a big main street. And then to your right, there's like, it follows the curve of the mountainside. So like, it's a very Mm -hmm. vertical city because it's on the mountainside. And you can see the street kind of switching back to your right as well. And on the sides of every street, there are these densely packed houses. And because we are up high when we enter, the first thing I saw was these gables and then this roof style. And I was like, oh, wow, that's that's different. And that gave you... Mediterranean vibes. It was the mainly the um like the orange red shingle that gave me that that impression. Even though I think that the um the gables are more of a like a northern European. This is boring as shit. Yeah, this is this is a crazy thing to get hung up on right away. I want to know what the fuck you were talking about? Like I I I thought like literal steps and I, whatever. We figured it out. I was looking at other stuff, I guess. I was looking at all of the... I was looking at all the fungus, straight up. And Um, fungus there is. You got so much fungus here. All of it. And you have flying fungus. Yeah, there are like mushrooms that are spinning and flying in space. Shooting stuff at you. Yeah. And then there's big dandelion-ass puffballs. Yep. Bell mushrooms. This kind of is like a cobweb almost of fungal growth that just kind of blocks different pathways yeah, off from it's, you. It's very Lark's Call-esque. Like, everything is, is kind of, like, putting off some kind of particulate. Yes. Um, Between this and Arum Vale, and I'm sure we've picked up some other shit from the other places we've been, I hope that the Warrior of Light has some good health coverage because I, I see multiple yeah, health problems in our, our future. Our vaccination card is like a CVS receipt, am I right? Oh, snap. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. All of the enemies here drop tons of debuffs on you. Poison, heavy, vulnerability up. It's really thematically appropriate for the fungus dungeon that they just stick so much shit on you. Yeah, it feels gross. Yeah. It feels oppressive. Yep. So uh, we step out of our courtyard. We take in this vista of the city. Aside from the fungus shit, this actually looks like my kind of city. It looks super walkable. (laughs) Nice. Broad cobble streets, dense housing. I mean, I think everywhere in Eorzea, except for Gardenia, the Castrums, it's kind of spread out. Not a lot of infrastructure, I guess, for, yeah, like people moving. Yeah. You're not going to have cars, so Limsa, everything's kind of walkable. Is like all bridge. Still walkable. It's a 15 minute city. Only with Aetherites. No, you can definitely walk from like Fisherman's Guild to the Marauders Guild in less than fifteen minutes. In in the maybe game, 20, 15, in the game minutes. world, yes. But if you expand this to the size of a real city, I'm pretty sure that oh, it's going to take you that. Okay. twenty minutes to go to the fucking bathroom because you got to cross two bridges and, and go down no, a tower. No, you just go over the side. Oh, okay, that's fine then. Yes, Ulda, though, aside from its socioeconomic issues, also pretty sweet seeming. I totally agree. I like, yeah, I'd live there. Anyway, that's a different episode. <laughs> well, um, tangents, hello. Okay, so as we descend into the city, our first enemies are unsurprisingly ambulatory toadstools called demon stools. <clears throat> then we run into some moths and gremlins, the latter being the little white furred, big eared guys, kind of cute. Yeah, they look like uh, Mogwai. <laughs> We also run into some slugs and bane mites, and this place has mimics. Some of the chests will turn into enemies. They hit pretty hard. Uh, They are not nearly as dead as deadly as the Palace of the Dead mimics, though. Yeah, that was a kind of a panic moment. I'm like, oh, fuck. No, it's fine. It's fine. fine. (laughs) Mimics are a kind of void scent that possess objects, so we can probably infer 
that these are left over from the Vaki invasion. Yeah, the magic is still very much like hanging around. And we learned during the run that um, the debuff inflicted by the gremlins, which is a vulnerability up called misery, <laughs> this can be removed if someone else does the slash rally or slash comfort emote on you. Oh, that's so fun. Yeah, it's a very cool detail. Why don't they do that more? There might be more. Who the fuck knows? But like, like if you went up to uh, Betaron and you did like the the cheers at him, would he give you like a little wink? You know how cool would that be? Very. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So add that note for seven point Soon enough, our path is physically blocked by a mold colony, a fungus ball with a bunch of tubes sticking out of it. <laughs> We have to defeat it and the cluster of enemies around it before the growth that blocks our path will clear. This is gross. And we soon reach our first boss, the decaying Gormand. Gormand. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So this is a this is a zombified Gubu with a bonus fanged stomach on its stomach. I love this enemy model. Yeah. It's it's a lot of fun. That belly mouth is so huge. Spooky. And this guy has fungal stalks growing from his shoulders. He's fucked up. He is fucked up. The main mechanic here is that the gourmand will tether to a player and then suck them up into its belly. Ew. At that point, the player is out of commission, but the belly is now targetable. <laughs> so funny. this person inside takes a ton of damage from the gourmand while it's in the belly. So you got to focus fire on that and knock them out of there. Before they get digested. Ew. He also drops some ground puddles. No big deal. Yeah. As we press on, <laughs> the area becomes thick with more fungus. And we start to become harassed by the next boss, who is a white scaled dragon thing. <laughs> it's got like a weird face, though. The face seems more demonic than reptilian. Yeah. Um, kind of like Demogorgon face. It's You can't really place it. Yeah. This is Ariok. It will drop an oily liquid on packs of enemies as you are going through this part of the dungeon, which gives them a damage up as it sends them into a frenzy. If you want to, you can lure them out of the goo so they don't get that buff. But um, while they're inside of it, they'll be buffed up. And I think that you get poisoned by being in the goo too. Great. In the next boss arena, we see a lowly Wamora, a fat moth. He's, he's hanging out I'm like what are you doing here all by your lonesome oh no it's a trap above the arena though we see Ariok circling around so what you do is that you want to kill the moth and then um, when it dies it will spray out in front of it a debuff called scale flakes which is a vulnerability up for the players that are hit by it but once you get covered in that good moth moth dust moth juice <laughs> I saw I saw you were like, what's a what's a grosser word I could use here? This though, this gives Ariok some appetite. So he will then descend to attack you once you're all mothed up. Really throwing on the old axe body spray like crazy. This fight is a neat twist on the ads mechanic. Because normally when ads spawn, you kill them and then you keep on killing the boss, whatever. But in this fight, more of these mobs will spawn during the fight, but you don't want to just kill them in mass because they will keep on appearing continuously. And as you kill more of them, you get more and more stacks of this vuln up the, debuff the on you. Of yeah. the juice, yes. So what you want to do is you want to always make sure that a player has at least one stack of the moth juice on them. <laughs> because if it ever ticks off, if it ever wears off, then Ariak will say, fuck this, I'm out of here. And he flies back up in the air. And he heals. And heals a fuck ton. Yeah. Yeah, it was a lot. Yeah. It was like 20%. That's what I thought I saw. I didn't know the exact numbers, but he healed a good amount in the small time before we killed our next moth. Yeah. This is like a neat kind of push and pull where you want to have some debuffs on you, but not too many. So you've got to kind of bring in more of the, the moths selectively and then kill them to keep just the right amount of garnish on you. Yeah. I didn't pick up that on that at all, but we, we had them down pretty solidly, except for that one time. I was not trying to fight the moths because reasons, but I'm sure I killed more than I should have. <laughs> That's mainly it. Um, no other real mechanics besides the ad management. 
So beyond the boss arena is a tall, triangular doorway. We enter, and we emerge into a vast indoor space. The Sanctum of Dreams. This is the interior of a huge, dark tower. We can't see the bottom. There are tall columns that come up from the darkness, topped with these circular decorations that have glowing, kind of uh, teal, shell-shaped windows on them. We descend down these stairs that connect these elaborately tiled circular platforms with blazing pink torches. And they look like they're floating in space, but they are connected just barely to the tower's walls. And this is where all the leftover void scent from the invasion have congregated. We get all sorts. Imps, Aramans, the tall wraith-like guys covered in masks. MTV's Dan Cortez. The last guys, the mask guys, are tethered to white mage stones, which are statues covered in glowing blue lights. And the mage stones give a region buff to the um to the mask guys. Yeah, this was this was very spicy. The mechanics of this were pretty clear, but it was really hard to do all of it in one go. The first pack we managed fine-ish. Each pack gets more powerful. Yeah. The second pack had like four of the mage stone towers and then like a fuck ton of void scent on this platform. And like that was so much damage just coming in at once just from like their their normal attacks on one tank at min eye level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we died. I'm not really sure what the mage stones are meant to be here. You would think that thematically they'd be like a prison for the void scent and like because they're tethered to them they'd be like keeping it in place because that's what the white mages did is that they imprisoned the void scent, namely Diabolos. But they are making the void scent stronger, actually, when they're tethered. Well, that's the deal with void scent is they just eat and eat and eat and eat. Right. So so it could be the inverse where they're feeding off these. Their own. Like if this void scent trapped in those mage stones, they're just eating that either. Oh, I, I assume they were like leftover... Um, power sources or whatever there could be voids in them too when we destroy the enemy packs then ramps of pure magic appear letting us descend down until we reach a rune covered platform composed of the same magic as the magic ramps magic and ramps here we meet diabolos and we are face to face with the void scent that the Amdapori contained centuries ago. Yeah, it's a whole like moment. This does indeed confirm that the seal that was weakened and the nightmares that the elementals were casting to a rune, these were the awakening of Diabolos. Diabolos, another long term Final Fantasy summon, <laughs> primal icon. Your your brand for that game here. Yeah. He first appeared in Final Fantasy VIII as a weird ass side boss with a tangential at best tie into the story. <laughs> I was like, we need like a like a cool red devil man. Well, brief, let me draw a cool red devil man. Brief aside and spoilers, actually not really because there's no story to him. But the Sid of that game gives you a magic lamp. And then if you look at the lamp, it's like, save before using this. And then if you use the lamp, then you get sucked into the nether realm and fight Diabolos. And then you return to reality and hey, I, that's That's it. a thing I just did. Yeah, pretty much. All right. But yeah, uh, cool guy. Cool dude. <laughs> would recommend. Yeah. This fight was bonkers. He appears with his signature visual. A jet black orb appears in the sky over the platform, and Diablos's body drips out of the orb. Blech. And then he hangs there in space for a moment until, snap, he unfurls his massive wingspan. This guy has some stage presence. <laughs> that he does. I, the whole arena, the whole like environment is yeah. super cool. Diablos is a devil-ass-looking void scent. Yes. Horns, claws, pointed tail. Bat wings. Yeah, he's the fucking devil. Correct. Like, like you know, the tales of Eld and Renaissance paintings. This is the devil. So, Jen, this fight has some mechanics to it. Some. It took us four or five tries, I think. Yeah. Um, normally, we're, you know, we're pretty good at doing this stuff. But this had a, it's the most esoteric mechanic I've ever seen. 
And the timing of it is so, so specific. It, there's there's very little wiggle room here. Yeah. So yeah, if if people sight read this and got it the first try, make them president. Like, like fucking hell. How is that even possible? I don't. I that and that bothers me because it bothers me that you can't reasonably parse your way through this in the time given. I like I don't know. Um, I'm sure people have because people are smart. But this is it, and also you would have to notice. Um, I just shifted in my chair. Please disregard the noises. Um, so when you walk into this arena, there are these dark, um, doorways, thresholds, uh, all around, like, in an array. There's, what, like, eight of them? Yes. And, um, at the top of each doorway is going to be a symbol, and it's going to be illuminated with a color. Um, and you have to, in that split, it's not a split second, but it feels like it, um, in that moment, you have to, it's like a memory game. You have to look for the, like, the, the two green ones. You have to look for the two red ones or like the, you know, the two butterflies, the, the, the goo boos or whatever, and make sure that you remember which two matched. So um, there are four pairs of symbols. They have a color and a shape to them. I think that the shapes are um, a moth, a demon, a goo boo, and like a dragon, I think. And they have different colors, but honestly, like the yellow and green looked very similar to me. I didn't even notice yellow. I thought it was like a shamrock. It's yeah, like, Ooh, it's, it's, charms. yellow is generous. It was a very green yellow, <laughs> is yeah. what I would say. Anyway, yeah, so those symbols appear. And then they go away. So when we first did this, um, Nashu was like, say, you guys want to go in there blind? Or do you want to maybe um, get a little background information on some of this shit? And, and Levi was like, no, we're going in blind. Blah. And um, of course, that failed. And we were like, hey, so how about some of them pro tips? <laughs> and, then, and then that didn't go well either and then and then we had to start like putting markers up because it was a problem right so the way the mechanic works this is like the make or break mechanic of the fight there are others as well but they are not nearly as tough as this one at a couple points during the fight diabolos will cast a spell called ruinous omen which has a pretty long cast bar and what you're supposed to do during this spell cast is you open Two doors that had matching symbols. They're gone now. There are no symbols now. Yep. Just. But they at one point had matching symbols. You open them and then you have to interact again with a door that you, that you opened. And then you get sucked inside the door and get face shifted out of the material realm and kind of like ghost walk on, on a rail. So you kind of get, get like ghost conveyed <laughs> between doors to the other matching door. In addition to having to have seen the matching symbols at the start and then remember them by the time this Casper happens, you also have to not open the doors too soon or too late. <laughs> yeah, the timing. So once we were like, okay, we like we, we understand this mechanic. It's not like when you, when you know what it is, you, you know what it is. The really the, the difficulty was first in remembering which doors. So that's when we had to bust out the markers and and you know, had people labeled the ones like, okay, okay, this one's a red one, this one's a red one, bam, bam. And then when the mechanic started, it was, oh shit, okay, as soon as that cast bar went, we were running to the door and we were like, go, 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 go. Still that we we fucked that up, we were still too slow. And then we're like, okay, as soon as that cast bar goes, we we run, we know what to click and when, we're doing it, and we did it too soon. So the conveyor, you know, was happening and we're like fuck we could we got spit out the door back onto this plane of existence right as he fucking shot us with that whatever that debuff was and we died um so we're like okay maybe we just we gotta wait a little bit before we do oh my god the timing was so it's like halfway through the cast bar is the correct time yeah by the way by markers jim means the target markers as in like the one two three chain cross circle hexagon whatever because you cannot place the ground markers mid-fight but you can target the doors and and press the button to make a one appear over the door yeah um so what you want to do at least what we did i'm sure you can also do this by memory too if you're cool cooler than us anyway um but we would take two of the matching doors mark them and then run to them when it was time for the mechanic and the symbols do reappear after the mechanic resolves. Yeah. So you don't just 
it's cool. If you only find one pair in the beginning, it's fine because it'll flash again. Yeah. And then you can spot two more matching doors and repeat because the doors will crumble after you go through them. Yeah. You can't just use the same fucking two doors. If of course you, you failed the mechanic, you take a fuck ton of damage and you get a huge vulnerability up debuff on you. So if it's you don't get killed by the first one, the okay. second one will kill you if you do it incorrectly. Yes. That's the main mechanic. If you got that down, you've got the fight down. It's fine. Just hover around the boss. He does a bunch of um, like big AoEs, but they're all donuts. So hang on underneath them. He's got a tank cleave. That's common and easy. Don't be by the tank. However, if you're running around between doors and dodging like gravity balls, then gravity you might balls. run into a cleave and it will hurt a lot. Yeah. The gravity orbs... These are a target marker on a DPS. He'll drop this gravity ball on the ground, and this thing will pulse out periodically, this huge damaging circle. And if you get clipped by it, you get fucked up and you get a heavy debuff. So if you don't get cured or if it doesn't tick off before it's time for the door shuffle, the old Scooby-Doo, <laughs> then um, then you're going to be slow as fuck for the door mechanic. So hopefully um, you don't get heavied or you get cured before it matters. Yeah. Drop that ball away, away, away. And that's the fight. That's <laughs> a lot of mechanics for a dungeon boss fight, which I applaud. I, I'm, I'm always happy to be challenged by a dungeon boss because oftentimes it's yeah. pretty straightforward. Yeah. So yeah, good dungeon, good fight. Uh, actually, all, all three of these fights are very creative, which I love. Everything oh, yeah. is a very distinct mechanic. Diabolos, we talked about him, very, very unique mechanics for that fight, which, though challenging, I think are cool. They're fun. Even though they're not sight-readable, at least in our opinion, I think they're fun mechanics, and I, I don't yeah, condemn yeah, them. Yeah, like, from the perspective of, like, putting this fight together, that, that must have been, like, a really fun idea to have. <laughs> yep. And then also the Gormond and his, like, EU mechanic, and then, like, the Moth add mechanic, all fun, new, distinct stuff. Yes. Great dungeon. Would recommend. Yeah. Bring a mask. Eight and a half out of ten. <laughs> when he is defeated, Diabolos blames his defeat on his long slumber. Oh, he was sleepy. I would call being a sore loser. Ooh, no, tight, tight. That was a lot of talk about the lost city of Andapur. Any wrap-up comments before we close out? Just a, uh, a thanks again to the, the two that joined us. Uh, our, our listeners that joined us for this. It was really fun. Um, we get to hang out with Naughty Ivy and Nashu. And Jin 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 Judge Jinjal Jinjal. <laughs> I was like, why am I thinking two J's? That seems weird. Yeah, and they they showed up looking fabulous. Uh, I gotta say, I think Naughty was a femro rare, right? With this amazing like bright red dragoon armor, and Nashu was all like blue and paladin and resplendent and glowy, and it was great. Uh, good photos. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, it was, I think, a gorgeous dungeon. I thought it was just super beautiful and uh, a good time. Nice. Well, next time we are continuing our white magic series and we'll be talking about the white mage job quest through level 50. And that will do it for today's episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, if you want to uh, chat with some of your fellow listeners, you can. You can join us on the Discord. Uh, check the show notes for details. You can email us at podreturnffxiv at gmail.com. And with that, we hope you guys enjoyed the episode and have a good day or night. And we will see you next time.